Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 64 of the Flying Free Podcast. Ladies, today I have with me Rachel and Rebecca, and we are going to have a conversation that I think is going to be super practical and helpful for you. We're going to talk about tactics that abusers typically use, emotional abusers typically use, to um, to wreak havoc on their abuse targets' lives. We're going to talk about specific tactics, and we're going to talk about ways that you can act, practical ways that you can actually handle some of these tactics so that, that leaves you in a place of feeling like you have some autonomy and power. Because so often they apply these tactics in our lives and we are just decimated by them. And we want to start figuring out ways we can set boundaries and feel strong, even when these guys are spinning their little in their little tornado worlds and applying tactics to us. Okay. We don't want to get involved in their little tornadoes anymore. We want to get out of the tornado and kind of watch them from a third party perspective, just spinning around and let them spin. But we want to be able to walk away and feel pretty good about our response. Okay. So, um, what we're going to do is first of all, I want to recommend a book. It's called the verbally abusive relationship by Patricia Evans. And on the flying free sisterhood membership site, which by the way, if you want to be part of that group, you need to go and get on the waiting list. It only, it only opens up every few months, but you can go and learn more about it at joinflyingfree.com. But anyway, in this membership site, we have a lesson called strategies for dealing with four, or actually the first lesson is called, um, 14 emotional abuse tactics. And we talk about those tactics. And then the next lesson is strategies for dealing with those tactics. But I'm going to have Rebecca and Rachel share their real life experiences of dealing with some of these tactics with their actual partners who are their exes now, both Rebecca and Rachel and myself for for that matter. We're all divorced and remarried. So we have experience living with emotional abusers, as well as living with guys that are amazing and awesome and don't treat us like that. So, um, we want to share some of our experiences with you and how we actually dealt with their tactics and eventually got out. So, um, Rebecca, why don't you start with the tactic? Well, I think mine would, um, fall into the withholding. Um, so we were married like 21 years and, I would say that it started out with just, you know, anytime there was an issue or a problem or something to overcome or figure out, I would come into the conversation with trying to fix it, right? Like, okay, here's the problem. Maybe it's logistics with the kids. Maybe it's paying bills. Maybe it's, you know, a church thing. And he would just not even respond. Like he never engaged. And what I realized later is this, his tactic of not engaging was for the purpose of trying to get me angry. And when I realized that we had two objectives going into the conversation, mine was fix it. His was, this is an opportunity for him to feel better about himself if he can make me the bad guy. And, and what was, was crazy is his, 
you know, I know therapists and all that have these ideas that this narcissistic um, problem is because they, they themselves are damaged people, but that's not my experience. Um, He was just a very cruel person and, and felt powerful and felt happy with himself when he could make anybody, me or anybody else feel worthless. So um, it took a long, long time because uh, the way I was taught to respond by the church and, and by the, and, and the Southern culture, you know, uh, forgive, uh, do your best, love, turn the other cheek. And so when you've got a problem and somebody is not responding, and then when they do respond, finally, it's with something so absurd that it really frustrates you even more. And so what I finally, and I'm, I'm talking 15 years into marriage, figured out after I had failed so miserably at holding my tongue. And, and so what happened is I think I spent 15 years reading the Bible and praying and asking God to help me not lose my temper instead of analyzing the situation for its logic and saying, you know what, at the end of the day, we have two different objectives here. And that's when I started making changes. And I have an analogy because you know me. I'm a <laughs> school teacher at heart. I've got an analogy. So this is what I, this, and it's what I began thinking. So this is my practical. I would imagine us two walking into the kitchen and we had agreed to bake brownies together. Now, just take that as we got married. We're coming into the kitchen. I get out the mixing bowl and I pour in the flour. Fantastic. Any of you bakers know you do the dry ingredients first. But he puts in an egg. Well, no big deal. We can maybe still fix this and come out with a pan of brownies. So I add in the chocolate, the cocoa powder. And then he adds in tomato sauce. And I'm thinking, no, wait a second. That's not going to come out brownies because you know what? He's making lasagna. I'm making brownies, but he's making lasagna. And when I was able to stop and recognize we are on two different planes, we have two different objectives. Mine is to have a happy, loving, peaceful marriage and raise kids and enjoy our time together, work through problems, grow closer. His objective, and that's, that's brownies, by the way, <laughs> his objective is lasagna. I need to be self-gratified. It does not matter the cost, but I feel like I get the best self-gratification when I can put you down confuse you, make you the bad guy and make your life miserable. Mm. And so when I was able to recognize the two, I would sit there and say in my head, okay, we're about to talk and he's going to be making lasagna and I'm going to be making brownies. So what do I got to do here? And what I ended up doing is basically, and very sadly, it took years before I divorced. Um, but there was never a relationship between us. And, and and I really don't think there is truly relationships between abusers and victims because there's no intimacy. And so I ended up just fixing the problems myself until I realized that's not how you go through life in a marriage. And then I got out. Hmm. Yeah. So did you say anything to him then when he would do stuff like when he would do stuff or did you just like, how did you change the way you responded to him? So first of all, I knew that his lasagna always made me lose my temper. (laughs) 
So once he put in that tomato sauce, I was like revved up and ready to go. So I realized I needed to avoid that. So instead of even engaging, I would bring up the problem and then I would tell him, this is the solution I'm going to proceed with. And then I walked away. I did not engage with him, which was, and I did this for like six years before I got out. Um, But I just recognized if I allow him in, it's going to make everything 10 times worse. And this was also at a point where, um, and I, we had been going to church. We went to church all 21 years, but before that I had um, talked to a pastor's wife and even um, some other uh, men, deacons in the church trying to get help. And I was always turned back around to, you need to submit to him, whatever he says goes, just have more sex with him, yada, yada, yada. So I was almost to the point where I cocooned myself. And if the only way I was going to raise five kids and survive was just to make the decisions and do what I needed to do. The, the only thing that that backfired on was I was uh, immediately labeled the rebellious woman because I was making the decisions. Mm-hmm. But you know what? He wouldn't work. So I had to make the decision to work and put food on the table. Like I was in a catch 22 now. And I would say even when in the process of really coming to understand after reading um, a lot of books on narcissism and things like that, uh, I realized not just losing my temper, but uh, that that response was not good either. So it took me a few years to, to just change how I responded, but basically I just didn't interact with them, mm-hmm. which is really, yeah. you don't have much of a choice. Right. And, and, and that's why, I mean, you just can't say, yeah, you got to stay in a marriage where you can't. I, I honestly, I, before this podcast, I, I took a great deal of time thinking about had I ever had an intimate conversation with this man? And in 21 years, I never had an intimate conversation. I mean, I know I had a really bad abusive husband, but I was always being, you know, trying to put that big, that nice Christian uh, foot forward and, and do what the church told me to do, do what I thought the Bible was telling me to do. But um, no, I found walking away and not engaging. And he would also try to, I think another one of the points was um, he would try to kind of make a fight and I would walk away. I just didn't engage. Well, mm-hmm. this also means that you have to give up something. You have to be able to, because we get angry, at least I get angry, because something is not going my way. I'm trying to control something. He, someone is not cooperating and they have to cooper- they have to do what I want them to do. Um, and these guys are generally speaking, never going to do anything that you want them to do. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? They're, they want to control you, not the other way around, but we have to give up our control too. It's important that this goes both ways as far as if they can do what they want to do, but okay. For example, let's say that they are, they want to control the finances and not let you, um, now let you spend money. That was one of a, one of the things that I had dealt with, but I was making my own money. So rather than, rather than getting mad about that anymore, I just opened up my own. I just, I just became an adult. Right. I opened up yeah. my own account and started putting my paycheck into my account. And when he had a cow about it, I just said, Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry that you don't like that, but that's what I'm doing now. And I would say that's, that's exactly what I mean by taking control of the situation. I looked at it and thought, 
uh, whether it was putting food on the table or, um, you know, logistically taking care of our kids, you know, here, there. And in so many ways, the church uses the whole submission myth and the whole headship and turns it around into a debilitation of women. And, and I was thinking about this morning, um, in some ways, we are no more than just a little bit older than our oldest child. I mean, that's the right. functionality. We're like the oldest child in the group with the most responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But we have absolutely no power to say or do or control the situations, which is not marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was. It was just taking that control. And it took me it took me years to really understand that I could take ultimate control and divorce. Um, and, and not, not cause I'm just a mean person, but because it was just so unhealthy, but, and, uh, it did, it felt very, I felt very conflicted. I remember feeling this is the only way that I can protect my kids. This is the only way I can put food on the table. This is the only way, um, that I can deal with this person, but I have to also, that also means I can't be the Christian I believe in, if that makes sense. Because I can't be that submissive wife. I can't be that one that just follows the spiritual leader of our home. Um, well, see, but that that whole idea, though, and again, it comes back to the whole control thing. Um, you can't control other people, but right. you shouldn't. So the submiss- the submission thing, and by the way, if anyone's listening and they're like, oh my gosh, heretics, There's we talked about this in the past. My website has articles. There's tons of books written about this. The whole submission idea is is not biblical. You think it's biblical? It's definitely not biblical. Um, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ came to, to bring. And I think the New Testament is actually more clear on that than people think. It's just that we've been brainwashed to read verses a certain way. But I don't want to get into that whole thing. But my point is that we have to control ourselves. So when you decide to get divorced, what you're doing is you're not saying I'm going to control, I'm going to power over you husband and I'm going to divorce you. That that's not what divorce is. Divorce is saying, um, in a life-saving divorce, I'm not talking about a divorce. Like I'm going to, you know, just go and have a fling with someone and then divorce my partner. But the, a divorce is saying, you know what? I, you have controlled me and, tr- and, and you have treated me like a, dishonorably. And like, I'm a child, you've done your own thing. You've not worked as a partner with me and you've refused to do that for several decades. And I'm, I am responsible for myself and I need to get out away from a person who is not allowing me to be responsible for myself as God requires of me. And, and, and you're taking back control of yourself when you get a divorce. Um, I just wanted to point that out because we're talking about control but I want to make sure everyone understands we're talking about controlling only yourself. And when you let someone else control you, guess what? You're not taking control of yourself. You're not taking responsibility for yourself. You're giving your responsibility for yourself to somebody else. And that's not appropriate. And that's not going to serve you well in your life. I'll give you a more specific example so that it's a little bit more clear of what I'm trying to convey. So my ex refused to work. And I know that's very uncommon. 
Um, but I, I always, when people say, what do you mean? Like, it's almost like it's unbelievable. And I'll say, you tell me how you get somebody to work because you can't make somebody else work. Right. So the problem in our marriage was there's $3 in the bank. The lights are going to be cut off. We're going to be evicted. Can you help me figure this out? And he would stonewall and just say nothing and look at me like I was insane. And so instead of going to him who was causing the problem to try to figure it out, I had to take control and save my home. Just like Abigail, I was married to a fool, save my home, save my kids' lives by getting a job and paying the bills and and making that decision without consult. I have an amazing husband today. We talk about everything. In fact, it's enjoyable to talk about everything. I mean, I have never, he he knows more about me than any human being on this earth. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And we take three walks every day, walking the dog, and we just talk. And I mean, that's a healthy marriage. If the other guy I tried to avoid like the plague because I knew even to be in the same room, he's going to pick a fight. He might physically hit me. He might just start something in with the kids. So we avoided him um, until we had the courage to take control of our own responsibilities and get out. <laughs> right. Rachel, you've been so quiet, quietly <laughs> listening to us blab on and on and on. So why don't you- <laughs> Why don't you um, hop in here? What's your experience with this? Well, I, you know, you were talking about control and just to bring it back to um, those biblical principles that sometimes it's like you don't make a connection until you see, start seeing things differently, but self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit and you are surrendered to the Holy Spirit's work in your life, self-control is something that is going to be very evident in your life. And self-control does not mean control of other people. So if your husband is trying to control you, what does that say to you? (laughs) Um, So just a thought there. But, you know, another tactic um, to take it back to the Verbally Abusive Relationship, which is a fantastic book by Patricia Evans. Another tactic that um, is, is characteristic of these relationships is countering. And I know this one so well because I was always always wrong. And there's, I don't remember a lot of the conflicts in my marriage um, until I started to wake up. And because my thought was, my husband is this amazing, smart, brilliant man, and everything he says is right. So that means when he tells me I'm wrong, he's right. And I just have to get over that, even though all of my instincts were telling me that something was going wrong here. You know, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, but there was one example I had towards the end where I had started um, just really seeing what was going on. And he, um, you guys know, in in dining rooms, the the chandelier, the light fixture is usually lower because it's designed to have a table underneath. Well, our our dining room table had become misaligned with the chandelier. It was pushed over too far. So he bumped his head on the chandelier and he was like, why did that happen? And I was like, well, we just need to move the, the dining room table. No, that's not it. That can't be it. That's dumb. <laughs> and then, oh, my word. <laughs> and then I was like, but no, look, I mean, it's just right under there. And, and by that time, I was able to dis- distance myself from, from his reaction and, and because I knew I was right. Um, 
And, and I knew there was a possibility that he might be wrong. That had finally entered the realm of my thought. And then he was like, oh, oh. And then he sort of laughed and smiled to himself. And we sort of, you know, I would never dream of throwing that in his face. But um, he was sort of afraid that I was about to because that's how he was. Yeah. Um, so that was just, it's like, I was just like, how could you? And I, I actually remember pointing it out to him. Like, do you see how I'm always wrong? And he, he didn't really acknowledge that, but, um, he knew that, that he had been exposed, I think. Mm. So that was just one example. Um, but I, I mean, it was thousands and thousands of times over 14 years where there was no doubt that he, um, he had to be right, had to be right all the time. And I went along with it until I didn't. So you see right there, for those of you guys who are listening, notice that Rachel had to decide. Rachel had to start seeing herself as a separate person from him. She had to start seeing herself as being just as smart, just as wise, just as able to see things and to understand things and to make choices as he was. Mm -hmm. Instead of this whole idea that, well, women aren't as smart, women aren't as, you know, they're, which I think in abusive relationships that gets twisted out of control. One of the things that um, Patricia Evans says that you can say, if your partner is arguing with you about something or has a different opinion or wanting to make you wrong about something, you can just acknowledge that that's their opinion. You can just say, say something simple like, so you say, and walk away. You don't Mm -hmm. have to, she recommends and so do we don't get into an argument with them. You're never Mm going to win an argument with them. You, and and there's no point in trying, you know, what's true. And you need to tell yourself self, I know what's true. He has a different opinion. So you say walk away. That drives them crazy by the way, because they want you to, they want you to, but you know what? They need to start seeing that you are not going to put up with their asshole behavior anymore. So mine would do this thing repeatedly where he would walk in, granted, he never lifted a finger to work in the home or outside the home, but he would always walk in when I was loading the dishwasher and he would just start berating me on how stupid I was that I didn't know how to load a dishwasher correctly. And of course, at the beginning of the marriage, I would just get my, I would start shaking my, cause I would be nervous. I would be scared. And then I would, you know, start rearranging it. And no matter how I did it, it was never the right way. So years later, I just would look at him and go, and I would say, well, then I'll leave it for you to do since you know how to do it and walked away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it just left him like, I mean, cause what are you going to say? So that's what I started doing on everything. He criticized me on, I would look yes. at him and go, Oh, so you know, the better way to do it. I'll leave it in your hands and walked away. Perfect. I love that. Mm-hmm. So this other thing that Patricia, that Patricia Evans says, which I love, cause I love a little bit of snark, but she <laughs> says, um, when they say something, you know, that, that their opinion and, and yours is different from theirs. Don't argue, but you can also say this. You can go like this. Aha. So that's what you believe. And then, if says, and then if he says, yes, that's what I believe, you can say mysteriously, I see. <laughs> Is this content resonating with you? I've written a book for women of faith in destructive relationships called Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can read reviews and find out more about my book on Amazon.com. 
It comes in paperback, Kindle, and Audible formats. And new for 2020, I've created a companion workbook for Is It Me, also available on Amazon. This workbook is like 11 power-packed therapy sessions to help you process through the important material you'll be learning from my book. These books are recommended by counselors and therapists all over the United States. I've also got a website specifically focused on helping women of faith find hope and healing. It's called flyingfreenow.com. I'll even give you the first chapter of my book and the first chapter of my companion workbook for free when you hop on my mailing list at the top of my website. Those two resources are going to help you figure out if your relationship is normal or destructive. And now, let's get back to our episode. But it does take some distance. So I think a key factor here is just, I mean, the ability to walk away is so huge. But like, you have to, you have to leave the game. You can't keep yeah. engaging and think that you're going to have the bandwidth in your brain to be able to implement these things because right. you're so you know, you just get so caught up in their little world and their drama, their tornado, um, that you don't have the, the distance and the, the, um, wherewithal to be able to, to think of these things and to, to see what their behavior is because you're so caught in their game. Yeah. You really do have to disengage inside your own self. And this is the kind of work that we actually do in the sisterhood. We, we retrain our minds so that we can start seeing ourselves as intelligent, separate human beings from, from, you know, from them. And we don't, we don't do it by, and by the way, some people will say, Oh, is your group man bashing? No, actually we don't focus on the guys at all. Why would we do that? (laughs) Gross. We focus on ourselves. We focus on, on seeing who our strengths and who we are and how we can actually handle ourselves in bad situations. Yep. Um, One, one thing that my ex would do, um, is he cracked a lot of jokes that he thought was funny and they weren't necessarily funny to, I mean, sometimes they were funny. He could be pretty funny, but sometimes they weren't funny. They were like little jabs at either the kids or at myself. And, um, one of Patricia Evans recommendations is to just say, you know, don't, first of all, don't try to explain to him why you don't think it's funny because they don't care. They don't care. And they're not going to go, Oh, I'm so sorry. Are they ever going to do this? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that that wasn't funny to you. They're not going to ever say that. So don't try to explain to them. Just say, now that you've said that, do you feel more important? Mm. (laughs) That's good. good. And walk away. Leave it, leave this leave. Like this is like playing tennis. You bat the ball back into their court and you walk off the tennis, the tennis court. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's difficult though, because, well, for me, I felt so mean when I stopped engaging because he, um, I just, I felt like it was my job to whatever he said, I needed to respond. And if I walked away, I was the problem. Um, so just, how did you get over that? I, well, it took a lot of information about what was going on. I really had to start waking up. Um, and start seeing this was the only option and what was really going on here. Um, but it, uh, this is what allowed him to control me was this need to keep engaging and to try harder and to, and to try to see it his way and all of that. And, and it wasn't until I, I finally got some information that I was able to say, actually, no, there's something really, really wrong going on here. Um, because otherwise it was just, I was in his world. Um, but I remember actually, I remember, (laughs) 
I had stopped sleeping in the same bed as him. I was in the guest room and I remember going downstairs to get uh, something from the bedroom just as he was going to bed. And he was begging me to come to bed with him. And, and I think probably to have sex. And I knew I couldn't do that. I had resolved I was not going to do that. But I, as I walked away, he's like crying and on the floor. And like, this is not an emotional man. Okay. He hates emotions, um, except for when it's anger and that's okay. But he was like, he had never displayed such, um, you know, what could be perceived uh, as like strong emotion, you know, and just love or like just desperation. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember walking away and, and like holding firm you know, and I was proud of myself, but I was also devastated because I walked upstairs and just, and I, I cried because I just felt like the meanest person in the world. Yeah. Um, but I knew that, that this was, that was the only response, you know, that was the only response that was going to work because I couldn't give in to him because I had done that over and over and over and over again. And it right. never made a difference. So what difference did it make this time? Like what, what after that happened? what was the result of that? Things, I mean, we were in home separated that summer and things continued, like he continued to use different tactics to try to rope me back in. Um, but I, at that point was pretty firmly resolved that, um, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do things on his terms anymore. Um, but there was, I mean, I had to be really watchful because I was, I was trying to gauge his behavior um, but it seemed like whatever, whatever new thing he was doing, I was, I was sort of hopeful, but it, it was actually just a new tactic cloaked in, you know, him trying to work for our marriage. So like, you know, us going, you know, out, out of town for a little date night, you know, um, and I was feeling hopeful and happy, but then I, I had to be realistic and honest with myself that his, his words and his heart were still evidence that he couldn't, he didn't understand what was going on. I had to be really honest with myself about and not delude myself anymore that he was capable of changing because the change wasn't there. Right. Even though it was dressed up differently. Right. Um, I, I would say that my biggest change came when, like Rachel said, you stop stop being hopeful and believing things are going to be different, but Mm -hmm. also by not letting other people continually push, you need to be hopeful. You need to give him more time. 21 years is not enough time. I mean, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, so when I cut those voices out and was like, no, I'm only going to listen to reasonableness. Like you guys have been saying this for 15 years why don't y'all come live with them then? You know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Take him in then. Right. Mm-hmm. You'll love him so much. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been good. Is, does anyone else or does anyone else do either of you guys have uh, anything else that you want to add before we close this down? I'm going to add one quick thing. One of her other um, uh, tactics is the undermining. And I was just going to tell women, the, for me, the undermining came when 
he would actually go to people in the church, people in our family, people in our neighborhood. And I didn't know this till years later. He was laying the groundwork for me being crazy. He would say things like, would you please pray for me? My wife, she's, she's just, she's so verbally abusive. And she, she's physically abusive. Sometimes the kids are in so much danger. And I mean, and then, but please don't tell her I told you she would be mortified. I continue to pray for her every day. So like there's this whole background he's setting up that no matter what decision I made, it was the wrong decision because everyone around me had this idea. And of course I'm busy raising five kids and working to provide the, to pay the mortgage while this bum does nothing, but has all this free time to go set a trap. So the undermining, just be really careful. I mean, I, I had no idea till after I was out of the marriage that, and his true colors came out and he ended up going to jail that all these other people started contacting me saying, Oh no, he was saying this about you. So just mm-hmm. there's always more going on than you think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rachel, do you have anything else you want to add? Well, undermining I, you know, our son, I remember, um, you know, he, he played basketball and this was like the thing from my husband's ex-husband's family. And there was a lot of pressure on our son to do really, really well in basketball. And he's like you know, a seven year old or something. And I remember, you know, he could never, ever do what my ex-husband wanted him to do in a game. And I remember, um, in the car after a game one time, and I was like, well, Coulter, it just needs to be like this, like this, you know, like trying to be really kind about, you know, encouraging him. And then of course, and I guess this is also countering, but it's, it's undermining, it was undermining because it was in front of our son, but like, you know, my ex-husband said, no, it's not like that at all. Don't, don't listen to your mom at all. Like she doesn't know anything about basketball. And, um, it was like that all the time. And especially when he was upset about something, when he was upset about something all, you know, just get out of the way because there's no reasoning with that. You're about to get mowed over and made to feel worthless and stupid and, and all of that. So, I mean, the, in the verbally abusive relationship, there's, um, 14 different tactics. And I have to say there was every single one of them demonstrated in my marriage at one time or another. And, um, I would really encourage women to get this book and to be really, really honest about what's going on with you in your marriage and and whether or not this is happening. Yes. You know, what's interesting is on, on a lot of these, um, we didn't cover all 14, but there seems to be this thread of distancing yourself mm-hmm. in, in different ways, but you have to almost, whether it's physically, emotionally, verbally distanced to be able to handle somebody like that. And I would say, my question is, why do you want to be in a relationship like that? Right. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, Jan Silvius calls it feeding, feeding them with a long handled spoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so let's close with this. Um, it's, it's important that, that you see those of you who are listening that these kinds of, uh, these kinds of tactics are cruel. They're abusive and controlling. They are an invasion of your rights and your dignity as a human being. They are not worth responding to more than saying, stop it, and then disengaging. Uh They are done by an emotionally immature and destructive person 
who does not have empathy or desire for intimacy or, and connection. Okay. I mean, if they desire it, they certainly are going about it all the wrong way. So why would you pursue intimacy and connection with someone who's not interested in, you know, reciprocating? And then finally, they are a blatant breaking of the wedding vows. Mm -hmm. And I think you could, I hope that you were able to see just like Rebecca just pointed out. Now the key to dealing with an abuser is disengagement. That's, that's the key. So um, you may or may not be able to disengage entirely while you're still living with your abuser, but um, that's one of the reasons why a lot of women will try a separation just to be able to, and I think that's what, um, that's what I did. It's what Rachel did. Rebecca, did you separate before you finally felt seven times in 21 years? Okay. So, but when you separated, you do, you, did you not feel like the ability to think a little more clearly about things? I did. Um, the separation worked best towards the end when I stopped allowing the separation to be the time that the church took control instead of my husband being in control. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I'm so glad you said that. Yes. Um, I agree. Cause I was separated the first year of my separation. The church was controlling everything I did. Yeah. And then the second year I was on my own, me and the Lord. And we, I, that's when I became, that's when I grew up. I grew up and then I got the strength after that second year to file for divorce. And now we're all making brownies. That's yeah. right. We are all making brownies. Oh, that's it's, a it great is, way to end this. And I feel guilty for craving pasta, but <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Well, okay. Listeners, this episode of the flying free podcast is made possible by the private flying free sisterhood education and support community, which offers courses expert workshops, live coaching, and more for women of faith seeking hope and healing from emotionally and spiritually abusive relationships and communities. You can find out more at joinflyingfree.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, fly free.